As you know, we preach through books of the Bible um, much of the time, most of the time, but during the summers we take some time to still preach expositionally through a passage of scripture to think about some things I think our church uh, needs to know or to give some context to the life that we're living together. And I think one of the most important things we can understand is why we do the things that we do when we come together in a worship service. I was just reflecting several months ago about how it's entirely possible to, to grow up in church, to go to church for your whole life, and never really hear any teaching about the things that you do, like why do you preach, why do you sing, um, why do we do creeds and the Lord's Supper and these other things, but why do we do these things that we do when we gather for worship? And so two weeks ago, we laid a foundation with a healthy biblical theology of worship. Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God. When we gather, we make much of God by remembering and rehearsing and anticipating the gospel story. And it's by remembering that story every week, it's by rehearsing that story every week that we learn to live into that story week in and week out. It's the way that when we gather at the beginning of the week, our lives are shaped around the story of God because we live into his story. He does not come be part of ours. Then last week I preached about preaching. Why do we preach? We preach to exalt Christ. Paul says that the Greeks want philosophy and the Jews want signs, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to both, but the wisdom and power of God salvation to those who receive this message. Paul says that we preach Christ for the maturation of the saints, that we begin our spiritual journey by hearing the gospel preached, and we grow in our spiritual journey the same way, by hearing the gospel preached, by growing deeper in our love and appreciation of the gospel. God began a good work in us with the preaching of the gospel, and God continues it on. We don't go from preaching Christ and then just a slew of life lessons. No, we preach Christ and preach Christ and preach Christ and learn to live in light of who he is. This preaching should inspire us. If you want to build a ship, you don't just give people jobs. You go get the wood. You go find nails. You go get tar or whatever you'll need. You can do that, but, but first you need to give them a longing for the sea. And good preaching has moments where you're taking notes and learning, but it also has moments, I think, where you put that pin down and you stop taking notes because you're just in awe of who God is. Good preaching inspires us. Many of you don't remember the things I say when you leave the place, but all of us leave with some sort of impression brought about by the service. We preach not just for instruction, but we preach for that impression. We preach not just to the head, but we preach to the heart so that you'll leave inspired by the glory and beauty and majesty of God. And we preach to instruct. Paul tells Timothy that in, in, in the last days there will be people who wander off with itching ears to find teachers who fit their own passions. There will be those who walk away from the apostolic doctrine, the doctrine of the apostles. There will be those who leave the message of Jesus for myths and all sorts of things. He tells him, do not let that be you. You stay the course. You keep preaching because the word of God is profitable for instruction. The God-breathed word is able to teach the people of God how to live, we preach for instruction, inspiration, and adoration of Christ. The third thing we do, the third week of the sermon rather, brings us to another thing we do, singing. I confess I am not a big music guy. 
It drives Holly crazy, but on road trips, I'm much more into podcasts than music, lectures than concerts. And though I love how Charleston comes alive in the summer, I really do, I have less than no desire to go to Live on the Levee. No offense, man. Like, I love it. I love it for the city. I love to see all the people down there. But if anyone wants to go, invite Holly. Because <laughs> she wants to go. You should totally go. It's not that I hate music. It's not even that I dislike music. I actually like it. You know, I listen to it while I write or research. If a band is in town that I like, I'll go to their concert. I'll sing my heart out here in worship. Music is tied to so many great memories. Music evokes strong emotion and music is a universal language of the human experience. But I begin with this confession that I'm not a music enthusiast. I'm not even really a music guy because I don't need to convince those of you who love to sing that singing is important. I don't need to convince those of you who love music that music is a precious gift from God. No, I need to help the ones who are more like me I need to help the ones who can take or leave music see that singing in worship is important. So if singing is not really your thing, if you'd be content with prayer and a sermon, then I empathize with you, and as a writer of prose, I get it. But I think we'll see together that we don't just sing in worship because it's what we've always done. We don't sing in worship because it's what people expect that they'll do when they go to a church. And we don't even sing in worship just because we really like music. I think we'll see that music and song has always been a vital part of the worship of God's people. And that neglecting this biblical component of worship is not something to take lightly. We neglect musical worship to our spiritual detriment. I want to very briefly consider the role of song in the Old Testament, just to show us its roots deep in the worship of God's people. I want to take us to the scriptures and see some examples, but we'll spend the vast majority of our time simply considering why we sing in worship. I think congregational singing has three movements to it, and these three movements will shape our sermon. I think congregational singing has an upward movement. We sing to and for God. Second, I think we'll see that congregational singing has a lateral movement. We sing to one another and for one another. And third, I think we'll see that congregational singing has an inward movement. We sing to our own hearts and for our own hearts. Now, I very briefly want to consider song in Old Testament worship by thinking about two important Old Testament people, Moses and David. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying everything there is to say about song in the Old Testament. Very, very, very far from it, in fact. I'm just setting the stage a little bit. So as I implored you last week, bring your head and bring your heart to the table and let's feast as a family on the word of God. We'll get to the sermon, we'll get to the scripture on the screen in a little bit, but let's lay some background work in the Old Testament. Let's consider song in the life and ministry of Moses. We see two significant songs in Moses' ministry. The first I want to note is in Exodus 14 and 15. In Exodus 14, you may remember the story, God splits the Red Sea, making a way of deliverance for his people and destruction for their enemies. He pulls the waters back, the people of Israel go through, and then as they're being chased by the Egyptians, he brings the wall down, the invisible wall down, and the people are 
destroyed. After this mighty act, Moses and the Israelites recall God's saving power through song. Let me give us an example, just a little snippet from the end of chapter 14 and beginning of chapter 15. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, so here we are. We've just crossed the Red Sea. The people are in awe of God. They are fearing the Lord. They are listening to his servant Moses. And they sing together as a people. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, and the song goes on. God's people remember God's saving power by singing to him in worship. Worship remembers the story of God. They respond to God's powerful revelation to them in praise and adoration. Now, we've said that worship remembers God's story, but we've also said that worship anticipates God's story, and the second song of Moses does just that. We find in Deuteronomy 31, the Lord God gives Moses a song to teach the people of Israel something about themselves. They'll sing it every year, and it'll teach them about their sin and God's holiness. It's education by singing. We still educate by singing. A, B, C, D. We sing the ABCs, we learn by singing. God has a song to teach the people of Israel the ABCs of their sin and his holiness. It'll serve as a lesson and reminder. Here from the word of the Lord, Deuteronomy 31, I'm just gonna read some snippets so we have some context. Now therefore, the Lord God says, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song might be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them. They will despise me and break my covenant. And when evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do, even today, before I brought them into the land that I swore to give them. So Moses wrote this song that same day, and he taught it to the people of Israel. God says, I know their hearts. I know that as soon as they get what they want from me, they'll be done with me. That's a sermon for us. As soon as they get what they want from me, get in the land of milk and honey, they get fat from all the wonderful milk and honey, they'll find other gods. They'll break the covenant that I've made with them. They'll turn to their sin. But Moses, you right now will teach them a song that will stay with them for generations. You'll teach the hearers who will teach their children, who will teach their children, who will teach their children, and they will learn something about the story of God and about themselves from the song they sing. Here's an excerpt from that song. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. 
a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now let's consider David very, very briefly. More specifically, the Psalms. The Bible has a hymn book. The Hebrew name for the book is Tehillim, means praises. We see praises or hymns for all sorts of occasions, holidays, moods, and situations. In the Psalms, the whole range of human emotion is brought before the Creator and offered to Him as honest and earnest worship. There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of commands to sing and rejoice scattered all throughout the song. Instruments are mentioned. Lift your voices mentioned. Psalm 92, for example, is a psalm that would be sung weekly in Sabbath worship, not so different from what we do now. Let's just consider an excerpt from that psalm. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand. That though the wicked sprout like grass and evil do which flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. They will be scattered. In tabernacle and temple, don't miss this, in national assemblies and in homes, the people of God have sung to the Lord their God. I want to frame the rest of our sermon around one passage in Ephesians. Though I could go to a similar one in Colossians that we did last week. I could go to one in 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 15, or James 5. But let's just consider together why we sing from Ephesians chapter 5. Look with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. If you have your Bibles, the words will also be on the screen. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Corporate worship has an upward movement. We sing to and for God. One of the frustrating, pervasive misunderstandings of the church is that it is something you can watch that it's primarily content. Though there is content in a church service, like the sermon I'm giving right now, it's easy to fall into thinking that a service is just half concert, musical content, and half sermon, lecture, TED talky type thing, other sort of content. You watch the concert, 
You take in the lecture, you like or dislike the content, and bam, you've had a church experience. And as I thought about this um, unspoken, pervasive cultural misunderstanding, I, I would like to affirm something in it before we just criticize it. Like, I want to affirm that I, I do think there's a sense in which this whole thing is a show. You're like, what? It's just a show for one person. It's a concert for one. So if we're going to say that like it's a concert and speaker, like it's a concert and speaker for, for one. Like we're all in the show. Let's consider the vertical dimension of our musical worship. Look at verses 19 and 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, how? To the Lord. So we modify singing and making melody with a direction. You're singing and you're making melody to the Lord. How? With your mouth alone? <laughs> with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything where? To God. The Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this isn't a concert where people get instruments and they sing at people who just watch them. But in one sense, we could say that it is a concert for one. We are together singing to the Lord with the spirit of thanksgiving always and for everything. We sing in worship fundamentally to praise and adore God. Our song is a confession that simple language and prose, meaning just non-poetic language, is an insufficient response to the beauty of God. We're not just moved to talk, we're moved to sing. We respond to infinite beauty with our own best shot at beauty. God reveals himself to us by the Spirit and we respond from our hearts in the Spirit. We worship God by song in the service because he is great and mighty to be praised. I've said over and over that the gospel event is our exodus, meaning that, that Jesus coming and saving us from sin is the event we look back to, just like the Israelites look back to that Red Sea splitting and them running through and their enemies getting defeated. Like We look to Jesus dying on the cross. We see our enemies being defeated and us receiving grace and mercy and life. And just like they turned around and looked and just sang to God in thanksgiving for what he had done, we look back to the cross and, and we sing to God for all he's done for us. We worship God by song in the service because he is great and mighty to be praised. We sing to God because he is worth our song. He is worth our adoration. He is worth our praise. He loves when we sing to him and glorifying him satisfies our hearts. This is foundational for us. Because if, if we don't get the vertical orientation of worship right, we lose sight of the object of our worship. We don't worship our feelings. We don't worship the people on the stage. And that's somewhat laughable, but there is a sense in which you can idolize like your church and, and all these sorts of things. Like, we don't worship that. Like, we worship God. The point of people on the stage is simply to help us sing beautifully together to the Lord. More on the together part in just a second. Our, our focus when we sing is, is heavenward. It's, it's Godward, brother, sister. We sing to God because he commands it over 200 times in the scriptures and because he desires it. Now you might say, I'm just not a good singer. 
listen, you're probably right. You're probably not a very good singer. You might be. But let me ask one simple question to you who, say, who says, I'm not a good singer. Who, who gave you that voice? Yeah. Where did that voice come from? He knew you couldn't sing before he commanded you to sing. Your voice may be bad, but, but when it joins the voice of all the saints around the world and comes before the Lord as a sacrifice of praise, it's beautiful. And brother, sister, if that heavenly choir does not include your voice at that moment in time and space, man, like there's no one else who has it. No one else has the voice God's given you. And if it's not there, then it's just not there. No one, as hard as they sing, can make up for the one who does not. God wants to hear your voice. In worship, we give God back what he's given us. We give him his breath back. We give him our, his voice back. And he loves to hear it. God wants to hear your voice. And guess who else does? Even if it's not the greatest voice, the people in the room. Let's look at the text and consider the horizontal dimension of worship. Second, we sing to and for each other. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit about that juxtaposition of being drunk in the flesh and being drunk in the Spirit in just a moment. There's a command not to be drunk with the wine, not, not to be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another, verse 19, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, so don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, and that's sinful. There's something better than wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. How? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I don't know if I had noticed this much um, when thinking about, like, singing in worship. You know, you probably expect to hear, uh, we sing to God, he's worthy, so blah, 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 I gotta sing to him. I'm not being flippant about that, but that's probably what you expect to hear from a sermon like this. But I, I don't know if that you necessarily expect to hear that the scriptures also command us not just to sing to God, but to sing to each other. I mean, look at 19. Do you see the horizontal orientation of singing? Addressing one another, How? in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's really important. It, it's God's design that when his people gather, when they're singing to him, they're singing together to him, but their voices carry a, a horizontal function, a horizontal purpose, that, that God wants to hear your voice, but your neighbor needs to hear your voice. It's God's design that your singing encourages your neighbor. I've talked a little bit about this in the past, but we need to figure out ways to, to communicate this reality um, it's, it's sort of clearly, spokenly, like this, and, and sort of informally. Like, the reason we don't turn the lights completely out for worship is because of this biblical passage. We think theologically about the life of the church and about our lives. Who is God and how does he command us to live? And he commands us not just to sing to him in worship, but, but to sing to one another in worship. 
So we don't want to give people that, like, they're al- the sense that they're just alone because you're not alone. And I think that's part of the reason that, that going on, online for so many was so easy because it's the same thing you're doing here, right? Like, if, if you're just alone and it's just you, then if you're just alone and just you online, then it's the same, you're just co- consuming content. The only difference is the location of your physical body. But the scriptures teach that when we sing, when we sing together, that we're addressing not just God, so it's not just private me, God, but we're addressing God together, that, that we're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You don't sing so others can hear how bad or good your voice is. You sing so others will hear the truth of the gospel. You sing so others will be encouraged to lift their voice. You sing because maybe the person next to you doesn't feel like singing that day and your voice will carry them. I, I, I love this church with all my heart and you know that. And I'm gonna say something that indicts us a little bit here. I, I think that you can tell something about a church's health, not everything, but something by how they sing in worship. You can tell something about a church's health by how they sing in worship. Now I know we have like 80, on a normal Sunday, 80-ish, 85 people scattered throughout a really big space. So I I know there's challenges that, that come with that. But if someone had no experience with the church, and they came into a, a service, I would want them to, to be most impressed with the congregation singing than what the band is doing. I would want them to leave and not say like, oh, that band was great, or that band was not great, or that band was this, or that band was that, or they had these instruments and not these instruments, or they sang these songs and not these songs. Like, I would rather them leave here and say, all of those people get together and they, they sing. I listened to a bunch of sermons about singing and worship and one pastor of a, a really big church in a college town uh, had a couple of people from England who were not believers. Uh, they came, they were here in the U.S. for something, for some extended time, and they were like, well, let's go see like a church service and, uh, in the U.S. and see what it's about. And the, the number one thing that he said that they, they talked about when they were sort of talking to him about it was like, smart people sang in there. Like normal looking people sang. It just blew them away that, all, that these people came together and sing. I, I would want people to leave here saying, man, those people sing together. Because when we sing the truths of the gospel together, we remind each other of the gospel. Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God. And this is tough because growing up, music was more of a battleground than a common ground. Growing up in the church, music was less about the church and more about self-expression or personal preference, which is sad because singing together is meant to bring us together. So practically, it's incumbent on church leadership to select songs that both remind us of the truth, so songs that are full of good doctrine, and are accessible to the congregation to sing. For example, if every single week we did all new songs, then you can't blame the congregation for not singing because they don't know any of the songs ever. You're just always learning them. So it's incumbent on the church leadership to select songs that are both good, true, and beautiful, and singable, and accessible 
to the people of God. Our songs rise heavenward, yes, but the scriptures teach that we should address one another with song. Our songs rise heavenward and our songs go horizontally. When, whether or not you engage in song says something about what you think is happening in the room. Listen, you, frankly, you might, might not like every song. We might not nail every song perfectly. We have gifted musicians who are all volunteers. I've been a part, sort of tangentially, in younger days of churches that would hire non-Christians to come and play in the band because they were the best musicians in their city. Like, just a fundamentally different approach to worship that I believe we should have. That the people on the stage are on the stage because they're brothers and sisters who are helping us sing beautifully together, not because they are rock stars and celebrities looking for a platform. You may not like every song, not nail every song perfectly, but, but, but hear this. Give me a congregation who sings with the people on the stage over just an insane production every single time, and as my mama always said, twice on Sundays. Right, give me a church that sings from their heart with thanksgiving to God. Their voices rise heavenward to the one who gave them their voices and their voices ring out horizontally to their brothers and sisters who need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel by song. Give me a church full of people who sing over the biggest and flashiest production. And counterproductively, I think that will actually do the trick that you're trying to get done with the giant production anyways. Because the outsider will come and they'll hear the beauty of a hundred voices from different backgrounds with different problems, different struggles, different fears, different interests, different desires who come together weekly to remember, rehearse, and anticipate the story of God. May this place be filled with the praise of God coming from the lips of the people of God and may that move you deeply. Let's finally consider the inward movement of musical worship, the third and final movement. We sing for ourselves. Music speaks to our hearts. God designed it that way. I talked last week about preaching to the head and preaching to the heart. Please go watch that, by the way, if you missed it. That's true, too, with singing. Singing engages our brains and singing engages our hearts. I alluded to this earlier in the sermon, but the music is sticky. It helps us remember things. I use the ABCs, and it helps you remember prepositions. Aboard, about, above, across, after, against, along, among, around, at, before. I know all the prepositions, man, from sixth grade. Because of a song. Not all the prepositions, but I know a lot of them. Jan Dills. She won't take no for an answer. You know what I'm saying? Bobby Warner, now's the time. Call three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. B, A, Ballard Sausage, double L, A. Anyone Ballard Sausage remember that one? People pay people a lot of money to come up with jingles because they're sticky. Because people remember them. 
something happens. I'm not going to pretend to like explain how brains work. I watched some sermons and pa- the pastor spent like 30 minutes talking about how the brain, I'm like, you don't know how the brain works. I mean, I don't know how the brain works very good. That's, I'm a theology guy. I'm not a, really a medical guy. But I know that what happens somehow is that truth is internalized when we sing. We often in discipleship talk about how do we make head knowledge, heart knowledge. And what I mean by that is like, how do you just take like knowing Jesus is Lord from your head to like knowing that in your heart and like loving that? Like I know that Jesus is Lord with my head. I know that he's my savior. And like something happens when that like works its way from here to here. And that I don't only know that Jesus is my Lord and savior, but I love that Jesus is my Lord and savior. Like, like how do I take these truths about God, these truths from the gospel, the truths that I have in my head and like actually love them. And almost always when we're in membership classes or when I'm talking to people and they're sharing their story, they talk about like a moment or a season in their life when things that they knew in their head begin to work their way down into their hearts. And I think that when we sing, truth is internalized. I think that that singing is almost like a, a hammer that can take that truth and just like push it down our heads and towards our hearts. Like I said in the beginning, like, I'm not a big music guy. Like I don't listen to like a bunch of worship bands. I don't know the, the, the landscape really. I don't know what songs are popular. I don't, I don't know a lot of these things. I just don't live in that world. But, but there are so many seasons of my life that I look back on and there are like songs that I remember singing. I mean, for example, when I was a student at Davidson College, my, my, uh, my freshman year, and sort of second part of my freshman year, I was thinking about what God was calling me to do and how it was like a complete diversion from everything I'd ever planned. And I'm, every Thursday night, we would open up the doors to the beautiful chapel on campus. And students would come and we would have Thursday night worship at 10 p.m. every Thursday night. And it was the, the coolest thing because it was literally just a couple of guys on a guitar, guys or gals on a guitar, and maybe like a cajon or whatever those things, like a drum type thing. And then we would just sing and they would have sheets of paper in the back and people would come in, grab it, scattered start time. You would spread out all over the, the room, bigger than this room. And people would sing. Some people would stand up. Some people would sit down. And there were these it's just every Thursday night and we would have this is cool like a testimony to music's power during finals week and like when things were getting really stressful we would have like not just one but like a bunch of non-believers there because they were just they would say like it's just so peaceful in here like it's just so calm in here like there's something happening in here that is profound but when I look back on that season like a song that we would sing over and over. Like, I lean not on my own understanding. My help, my help comes from uh, the Lord. Like, we're singing different songs. And I, I look back on that season, I'm, I think about that song that we would sing and sing and sing. And so I'm wrestling with these questions of, in my life about moving back to Charleston and pursuing ministry and, and what's God calling me to do. And, and I'm just coming to him week in and week out. And I just have these overwhelming memories of just, I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. Singing that song and realizing that, that wherever I go, whatever I do, like I'm not going to be outside God's will, that I'm following him and trusting him. So many times I've been in just tough situations in ministry and I I need to know that God is a fortress to those who want him. And so I'll sing with all my might, this hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And when I sing that hymn by myself, I think sometimes Holly's probably heard it just ring out in the office. Like I'm professing truth with my head and my heart and I'm professing that our God is a mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing, our helper in times of trouble. 
When we sing, we are professing truths outside of us that we need to get inside of us. Notice the command in our text to sing and its connection to being filled with the Spirit. It's kind of an odd juxtaposition. Sing to be filled with the Spirit. Don't be overtaken with wine, for that's debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And immediately, Paul begins to talk about singing. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing God and one another in song. I think this is difficult to explain. As you're addressing God and one another in song, you're being filled with the Spirit in a fresh and profound way. Be filled with the Spirit, singing to God and one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The same function that wine plays to drunkenness, singing plays to spirit-filledness. You could say from the text. And so if you're not doing that, then it seems you're missing a vital input in your spiritual life. Worship team, come on up. I am finished. Singing reminds our hearts of truth we need to know. Singing takes what we know and moves it to our hearts. Sometimes we cannot talk, but we can sing. You hear stories of people on their deathbeds singing hymns to the Lord. What will be the song on your heart that you sing when even you cannot talk? I need to sing. And in some ways, this is not the most profound point of the sermon, but I think singing keeps us honest. And here's what I mean. It, it It is really hard to sing with a full voice and an unclear conscience. It is really hard to sing with a full voice and an unclear conscience. You never feel more like a hypocrite than when you sing to the Lord with all sorts of sin in your heart. So sing for your soul. You remember in Deuteronomy 31, God says when these people sing this, they'll be what? Confronted by their sin. And so that, I mentioned a moment ago, like it's hard to like sing and like know you're just not there. Like if that's you, if, it, if singing for you is something that, like man, I was singing with my voice, but I know what I was using that for yesterday. You know, I, I'm singing with my heart now, but I know where my heart was last night, earlier in the week, where it will potentially be later. I have good news for you. In worship, we remember, rehearse, and anticipate the story of God. We reflect together on the grace that has been shown us by Jesus the Christ. We let the word of God dwell richly among us by preaching it, by singing it, by confessing it in distilled forms, its purest doctrine, its most central truths. We preach the word and we sing the word. We let this truth dwell in us richly 
through songs, hymns, songs, spiritual songs, old ones, new ones, ones that we'll introduce in the future as we continue to grow into who we're becoming. Brother, sister, we're still very much in building mode. Congregational singing has an upward movement. We sing to and for God. We give the voice back to the one who gave us a voice. We give him praise and glory because he is beautiful and majestic and we respond to beauty with beauty. Poetry is the language of the prophet. And congregational singing has a lateral movement. It encourages the saints, it lifts us up. It's like we're singing together and we're going to fight. It's like that feeling you get when the mountaineers win and you're singing country roads. Like it just fills you with pride. Something is happening. It's the song that you sing as you march to battle. Like it, it fills us together, unifies us together. We sing to and for each other because we need to hear these voices. If we can sing, knowing all we've been through, if you can sing, if he can sing, if she can sing from all she's been through, then maybe I can sing in the darkness of my life too. We sing to build each other up. And we sing for ourselves. We sing to our own hearts and for our own hearts. We sing to remind our souls of what we forget. We sing to move truth from the land of logic to the world of beauty. We sing to love. We sing for our souls. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich and so good. As we reflected last week, your word is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the divisions of the heart and soul. When your word goes forth, no one is hidden from your sight. Lord, as we take some weeks here to contextualize what it means to do church, why we do the things that we do, from preaching last week to singing this week. Why in the world do we do that every week? I pray that your living word instructs us. Your living word shapes us. Your living word molds us. That we might leave this place this morning with a, with a commitment to song. Not because we all, all of a sudden love music. Not because we love every song that we sing necessarily. But because we know that congregational singing is to and for you. It's to and for one another. And it's to or for our own souls. Lord, I pray that for the next several decades, that every single Sunday, these old seats will be filled with new life. That beauty will rise from this theater. That what was built to be a, a theater where people get up on a stage and perform and a bunch of people in the audience laugh would just be one giant stage every week where the people of God sing of your glory sing to build each other up and sing out to remind our souls that you are Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.